Following in the footsteps of greatness is never an easy thing, especially at the dawn of history. This was the Bronze Age, when glory could not be bought or borrowed or bartered, except with the price of blood. Sure, there was praise to be earned for building roads and consecrating temples and giving grain to the hungry. All of that was very well and good. However, it was the virtues of war, not peace, that enabled a man to be great. Tragically, there was no other playbook, only the one written by Sargon in the blood of his enemies. And his successors, knowing no other way, followed it to the very letter, even as it became certain that their creation could never last. The year was 2279 BC, or thereabouts, and Sargon of Akkad was dead after a reign of 56 years. He was succeeded by his son, Rimush, whose ascension was accompanied with the outbreak of rebellion. Despite the many uprisings his father had put down, resistance to Akkadian hegemony was evidently reinvigorated by what the Sumerians perceived to be a moment of weakness. Now, with Sargon out of the picture, the Sumerians reasoned that they had a chance to break free of the Akkadian yoke, disenchanted as they were with rendering tribute to Akkad in the form of grain and other commodities. Even if the Akkadian Empire was fundamentally decentralized in nature, and willing to co-opt those born outside of Akkad into the inner circle, there were probably other reasons for Sumerian discontent beyond the extraction of tribute, including the dispossession of land first from small Sumerian landlords and later the Enses, the ostentatiousness of a newly ascendant Akkadian aristocracy, and finally the embitterment that any sophisticated civilization might feel in a state of subjugation. But however legitimate these misgivings were, Sumerian resistance was summarily crushed by Rimush and his armies. The Sumerian cities of Uma, Ur, Lagash, Adab, Der, and Kezalu were all brought to heel once again. After all these millennia, we still have the cold, clinical, casualty counts of these reconquests, carefully recorded in cuneiform inscriptions by the scribes of Rimush. In all, something like 23,000 Sumerians were supposed to have been killed in battle, with twice that number being taken captive. A staggeringly large portion of the fighting men of Sumer had suddenly been neutralized, and it was the fighting men who fared the worst, sentenced to death, slavery, or a lifetime of hard labor, such as stone-cutting in the distant Zagros Mountains in present-day Iran. In a further act of reprisal, Rimush seized some 134,000 hectares of farmland outside of Lagash and Uma. That's about 331,000 acres, or the equivalent of 250,000 football fields, making this the largest land transaction, if it can be called such, that is documented in Mesopotamian history. These vast swathes of land were entrusted to the royal favorites that formed the core of the Akkadian elite, allowing Rimush to consolidate his control of the region and turn his attention elsewhere. Rimush proceeded to squash resistance around Akkad in the very heartland of his empire, before going on the offensive against Elam in the east. He was successful yet again, reasserting Akkadian control in Elam and Susiana, and returning with even more plunder and slaves. 
we have a depiction of one such unfortunate slave, portrayed as naked, bound, and hauled forward by a nose ring attached to what seems to be a pole. To celebrate his successes, we hear that Rimush had a statue made of himself in tin, a rare and therefore immensely valuable metal in the region, which could be alloyed with copper to form bronze. We know this by way of an inscription associated with the statue that equated Rimush with the gods, something unprecedented at the time. Curiously, we have another work from this period called Head of a Ruler. Simply named but intricately carved, its original name and subject elude us. Made of a copper alloy, it may depict Rimush, although we lack the evidence to confirm this. Personally, looking at this individualized, life-sized copper head, with its intelligent brow, heavy-lidded eyes, and delicate mouth, I find it difficult to believe that Rimush would have himself depicted this way. Although only hollows remain where eyes should be, there is a kindness and refinement that emanates from this face that does not accord with the historical image we have of Rimush, the one he spent the nine years of his reign cultivating with lengthy recitations of the number of enemy dead, captured, and enslaved. But perhaps there was simply another side to the man that would not make him the only butcher in history with a sensitive side. Far from it, in fact. Whatever the case, after almost a decade of rule, Rimush met his end in a dramatic palace conspiracy. As Mesopotamian tradition has it, he was killed not by dagger, sword, or bow, but instead by a group of courtiers armed with cylinder seals, the very instruments meant to legitimize his decrees. The mechanics of the murder are a mystery to us. Rimush was either beaten to death, strangled to death with the cords from which cylinder seals could be suspended, as if on a lanyard, or stabbed to death with the pins that cylinder seals could be attached to cloaks with. One wonders whether Rimush's brother, Manishtusu, was involved in the conspiracy, for it was he that now ascended to the blood-spattered Akkadian throne. Manishtusu inaugurated his reign by pushing even further east than his brother had, beyond Susa, to seize Anshan and Shirihum. We are also told that he assembled a mighty fleet and conquered 32 cities beyond the sea, those that speckled the Persian Gulf coast. In taking these lands, Manishtusu secured for his empire a fresh supply of silver as well as diorite, a precious stone that breathed new life into the art of Akkadian sculpture which became increasingly naturalistic, grandiose, and tailored to royal and funerary themes. Beyond that, we know that Manishtusu established new trade routes, most notably with the faraway civilization of Egypt. And, closer to home, he rebuilt the Temple of Ishtar in Nineveh. In total, Manishtusu ruled for 15 years. It was a longer reign than his predecessors, and seemingly more peaceful, judging by the lack of inscriptions and other such commemorations related to military conquests. But it ended in almost exactly the same way as his brother's reign did, with a palace conspiracy that left Manishtusu slain at the hands of his own courtiers. He was succeeded by his eldest son, Naram Sin, who had been groomed for command while accompanying his father during his military campaigns. Supposedly, he was also a great hunter, felling a wild bull in Syria. Of all of Sargon's successors, Naram Sin would be the greatest without question, the only one who could rival him in martial prowess and fame, even if his name is not as widely recognized today. 
During Naram Sin's 37-year reign, the Akkadian Empire reached its territorial zenith, stretching from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean and encompassing parts of present-day Iraq, Iran, Kuwait, Syria, and Turkey, with influence in modern Oman, Pakistan, Lebanon, and other regions that either paid tribute or traded with the Akkadians. In his day, Naram Sin would come to be known as King of the Four Quarters of the Earth, the first Sargonic ruler to take this title. Anticipating the triumphs held by the Romans, it was during the reign of Naram Sin that all sorts of exotic animals entered the record of Mesopotamia, appearing in art, literature, and inscriptions. Suddenly, we hear of elephants, rhinos, crocodiles, water buffaloes, gazelles, and lions. Of particular importance, as one might expect, is the lion, the king of the jungle, who would become associated with Naram Sin, depicted as he was seated on a leonine throne or mount, riding into battle in later iconography. As with Sargon, precious little remains about the means by which Naram Sin won his battles, but we have a lengthy accounting of the lands he took and the enemies he killed and humiliated, with precise figures given as was the case with his immediate predecessors, Rimush and Manishtusu. But Naram Sin was in a league of his own, or at the very least, in the same one as Sargon. Like Anzu, the mythical lion-headed stormbird of Mesopotamian tradition, we see Naram Sin flying from one corner of his ever-expanding empire to the other, from the Zagros Mountains in the east, to the Taurus and Aminus Mountains in the west, to the Armenian highlands in the north where he reached the sources of the Tigris and Euphrates, the life-giving rivers of Mesopotamia that had made all of it possible, cities, civilization, and the rest of it. As we have established, our grasp on many specificities related to this period is tenuous, and we don't always know whether a given region was firmly under Akkadian control or merely a tributary. We often hear about reconquests, with peripheral regions seeming to have passed in and out of Akkadian control quite often. Nonetheless, even if some of Naramsin's conquests were really reconquests, others indicate that he succeeded where his predecessors failed, or at the very least, that he is perceived to have done so. Regarding Naramsin's conquests in Syria, for example, we have the following inscription. Quote, Whereas for all time since the creation of mankind, no king whosoever had destroyed Arminum and Ebla, the god Nergal, by means of his weapons, opened the way for Naram Sin the Mighty, and gave him Arminum and Ebla. Further, he gave to him the Aminus, the Cedar Mountain, and the Upper Sea, by means of the weapons of the god Dagon, who magnifies his kingship. Naram Sin the Mighty conquered Arminum and Ebla." End quote. In this inscription, we meet two gods that we have not yet crossed paths with. The first is Nergal, god of the underworld and associated with destruction, and the second is Dagon, the god associated with prosperity. One could say that these two deities embodied Naram Sin's reign well, destruction on the one hand and prosperity on the other. As regards the conquests themselves, though, there is some debate over the historicity of Naram Sin's claims. Some scholars think that Ebla had already been destroyed by Sargon, or even before that, in 2500 BC, over 150 years before the start of Sargon's reign. Furthermore, unlike Ebla, we do not even know where Arminum was located, 
We are told, however, that it had three thick layers of walls surrounding it, but that these were overcome by Naram-Sin and his armies, who captured the ruler of the city after a tense standoff in the doorway of his palace. Supposedly, the outer wall stood 20 cubits high, or a little over 13 feet, the inner wall 30 cubits high, or 20 feet, and the citadel wall 44 cubits high, or a little over 29 feet. These were still the early days of walled fortifications, and so it is in this regard perhaps, as a master of the nascent art of siege warfare, that we can consider Naram-Sin a trailblazer. But, as with Sargon, we have none of the tricks of the trade. Nothing like the detailed exploits of Alexander at the Siege of Tyre, for example. And because, again, these were the early days of siege warfare, the concept of defending a walled fortification was made out to be cowardly in Mesopotamian tradition, with a later poem likening Naram-Sin to a lion snuffing out a fox hidden in his burrow. But this would be far from Naram-Sin's most dramatic showdown. The climax of his reign would come after yet another rebellion broke out in Sumer, one that required him to raise his armies nine times in a single year. This time, it was precipitated by Kish and Uruk, both of which sought the support of neighboring cities and peoples and formed coalitions that proved to be existential threats to the Akkadian Empire. Undeterred, Naram-Sin's response was to close the gates of Akkad, entreat Shamash, the solar god of justice, rally his army, and then sally out to meet the Kishites and their allies in battle. He emerged victorious and destroyed the remnants of the enemy army in Kish, where the defenders put up a bitter resistance, fighting street by street until the Euphrates, diverted in its course to flood the city, ran red with their blood. Next, Naram-Sin fixed his attention on Uruk, who had allied with the Amorite tribe. In rapid succession, he bested the Amorites and then marched on Uruk itself. Like Kish, Uruk, the city of Gilgamesh, which had given the Akkadians so many gifts of civilization, was flooded. Both Kish and Uruk would recover, but the Sumerians had learned their lesson, at least for the moment. Naram-Sin was not to be challenged. Following his victory over the Sumerian coalition, Naram-Sin plundered the cities along the gulf before returning home laden with booty and with his rebellion subjects clapped in neck stocks. An inscription commemorating the victory read, quote, Naram-Sin the mighty, king of Akkad, when the four quarters of the earth attacked him together, through the love Ishtar bore him, was victorious in nine battles in a single year, and captured the kings whom they had raised up against him. Because he defended his city in crisis, the people of his city asked of him that he be god of their city Akkad, and they built his temple there. End quote. That's right, Naram-Sin had ascended to godhood. In a victory stele commemorating his victory over a Zagros mountain tribe, he is rendered as one, standing at twice the height of those around him, and wearing a horned helmet such as only divine figures were represented with in art and literature. But between the countless battles and the ascension to divine heights, at least in the imagination of his followers, Naram-Sin undertook a series of administrative reforms and civic projects, proving himself Sargon's equal not just in war, but also in stewardship. We can assume that much of these reforms were actually put into effect by the Shapirim, an Akkadian word with no Sumerian equivalent for the steward of the royal court. The Shapirim II was the land registrar, 
whose team of scribes helped him keep an accurate record for the total amount of arable land in the empire. In studying the dynamic between the Shaparim, the land registrar, and the Enses, one observes a precocious sort of state formation taking place. Baby steps on the road to the IRS, I guess you could say. Cities in Sumer and elsewhere now had to convert their agricultural output into a new Akkadian standard of measure when rendering tribute, coinciding with an attempt to make the system of weights and measures uniform in the Akkadian Empire. In addition, local administrators had to abide by certain Akkadian mathematical conventions, such as giving a figure for the amount of land that could be cultivated by one team of farmers. There were also new standards imposed on scribes engaged in record-keeping, at least for those records submitted to Naramsin's court. Everything from the clay tablets they used to the cuneiform script itself had to meet the strict expectations of Akkadian officials, who demanded rectilinear clay surfaces, elegant and broad handwriting, simple and straightforward accounting, and enough space for independent auditors to make their own reports. Looking at the surviving records, one almost feels the need to applaud the Akkadians for making an art out of ledger-keeping. It was also during Naramsin's reign that cylinder seals were used on cuneiform tablets for the first time, basically as the equivalent of stamps on legal documents, decrees, and so forth. As regards civic projects, Akkadian buildings and commodities dating back to this time show up in the archaeological record of the site of Susa and present-day Syria. Furthermore, Naram-Sin had the Sumerian city of Ikur renovated, and we have a document that describes what life was like for the laborers involved in this enterprise, which was overseen by Naram-Sin's eventual successor, Shar Kalishari, under whose reign the project most likely reached fruition. From this document, we hear of the purchase of bronze, copper, silver, and gold weighing tons, and the involvement of 77 woodworkers, 86 goldsmiths, 10 sculptors, and 54 carpenters. We also get a description of what the finished product was supposed to look like. There were to be four bisons plated in gold, and two winged dragons made of copper, their bare teeth also plated in gold. To me, this iconography sounds like something plucked right out of an Assyrian courtroom. Clearly, the Akkadians set a warlike precedent for these later empire builders, whose infamy would surpass even theirs. To maintain control of the temple system, Naram-Sin appointed not one, but three of his daughters high priestesses. The most notable of these was En-Menana, who was made the direct successor of En-Heduana as high priestess of Ur. As we have discussed before, this temple was dedicated to the deity associated with the moon, known as Nana in Sumerian and Sin in Akkadian. Therefore, it had particular importance to Naram-Sin, whose name meant Beloved of the Moon God Sin. Another deity of particular importance was, of course, Ishtar. Temples dedicated to this patron deity of the Sargonic dynasty were erected at Nineveh, Zabala, Adab, and the capital, Akkad. This brings us to an interesting aspect of Naram-Sin's legacy. Despite his successes on and off the battlefield, and his commitment to erecting temples to please the gods, later civilizations like the Hittites and Babylonians would repeatedly attempt to undermine his legacy, making him out to be a sort of foil to Sargon, disfavored by the gods. Much of this infamy seems to come from one story, 
The Curse of Akkad, written only about a century after Naram-Sin's reign. The myth seems to have clear parallels to the Sumerian Sargon legend, with Naram-Sin cast in the role of his grandfather's nemesis, Urzababa, the king of Kish who Sargon had been cupbearer to. As far as we can tell, the basis for the legend was Naram-Sin's renovation of the Temple of Ikur in Nippur, which was seen as sacrilegious. Like the Sargon legend, the Curse of Akkad was just a story, but it's honestly a much better one. It's got pace and rhythm and erudition, all the elements of a successful historiographical myth. Not only is it replete with allusions to the origin story of Sargon, it also demonstrates a familiarity with the norms of Akkadian governance and understanding of what life was like for the subjects of the empire. And that is to say nothing about the poem's underlying themes, like the cyclical nature of history, the folly of pride, and the loneliness of kings. We are fortunate to have much of the legend remain intact today, and it is regularly quoted by scholars studying the Akkadian Empire in a wide range of contexts. It's simply one of the best sources we have for understanding the legacy of the Akkadians, colored as it was by the bias of the Sumerian poet-historian who composed it. With all that in mind, I would now like to read to you an abridged version of The Curse of Akkad. Despite being abridged, it's still going to be a pretty long read, but because it's so entertaining, let's give it a shot. The Curse of Akkad, quote, After Enlil's frown had slain Kish and given the kingship from the south as far as the highlands to Sargon, king of Akkad, holy Ishtar established the sanctuary of Akkad as her celebrated woman's domain. Like a young man building a house for the first time, like a girl establishing a woman's domain, holy Ishtar did not sleep as she ensured that the warehouses would be provisioned, that dwellings would be founded in the city, that its people would eat splendid food, that its people would drink splendid beverages, that those bathed for holidays would rejoice in the courtyards, that the people would throng the places of celebration, that acquaintances would dine together, that foreigners would cruise about like unusual birds in the sky, that even Marhashi would be re-entered on the tribute rolls, that monkeys, mighty elephants, water buffalo, exotic animals, as well as thoroughbred dogs, lions, Mount Ebexes, and alum sheep with long wool would jostle each other in the public squares. She then filled Akkad's stores for wheat with gold and silver. She delivered copper, tin, and blocks of lapis lazuli to its granaries and sealed its silos from outside. She endowed its old women with the gift of giving counsel. She endowed its old men with the gift of eloquence. She endowed its young women with the gift of entertaining. She endowed its young men with martial might. She endowed its little ones with joy. The nursemaids who cared for the general's children played the Algersur instruments. Inside the city, tiggy drums sounded. Outside it, flutes and zamzam instruments. Its harbor, where ships moored, was full of joy. All foreign lands rested contentedly, and their people experienced happiness. Its king, the shepherd Naram-Sin, rose as the daylight on the holy throne of Akkad. Its city wall, like a great mountain, reached the heavens. It was like the Tigris going to the sea as holy Ishtar opened the portals of its city gates and made Sumer bring its own possessions upstream by boats. The highland Martu, people ignorant of agriculture, brought spirited cattle and kids for her. The Maluhans, 
the people of the Black Land brought exotic wares up to her. Elam and Subir loaded themselves with goods for her as if they were pack asses. All the governors, the temple administrators, and the accountants regularly supplied the monthly and new year offerings. What a weariness all these caused at Akkad city gates. Holy Ishtar could hardly receive all these offerings. As if she were a citizen there, she could not restrain the desire to prepare the ground for a temple. But the statement coming from the Ikur was disquieting. Because of Enlil, all Akkad was reduced to trembling, and terror befell Ishtar. She left the city, returning to her home. Holy Ishtar abandoned the sanctuary of Akkad. Like a warrior hurrying to arms, she removed the gift of battle and fight from the city and handed them over to the enemy. Not even five or ten days had passed and Ninurta took away the jewels of rulership, the royal crown, the emblem, and the royal throne bestowed on Akkad. Shamash took away the eloquence of the city, Enki took away its wisdom, On took away into the midst of heaven its fearsomeness that reaches heaven. Enki tore out its well-anchored holy mooring pole from the Abzu. Ishtar took away its weapons. The life of Akkad's sanctuary was brought to an end, as if it had been only the life of a tiny carp in the deep waters and all the cities watching it. Like a mighty elephant, it bent its neck to the ground while they all raised their horns like mighty bulls. Like a dying dragon, it dragged its head on the earth, and they jointly deprived it of honor as in a battle. Nerebsin saw in a nocturnal vision that Enlil would not let the kingdom of Akkad occupy a pleasant, lasting residence, that he would make its future altogether unfavorable, that he would make its temples shake and would scatter its treasures. He realized what the dream was about, but did not put it into words, and did not discuss it with anyone. Because of the Ikur, he put on mourning clothes, covered his chariot with a reed mat, tore the reed canopy off his ceremonial barge, and gave away his royal paraphernalia. Naramsin persisted for seven years. Who has ever seen a king burying his head in his hands for seven years? Then he went to perform a sacrifice on a goat regarding the building of the temple. But the omen had nothing to say about it. For a second time he went to perform a sacrifice. But the omen again had nothing to say about the building of the temple. Because his subjects were dispersed, Naramsin now began a mobilization of his troops. Like a wrestler who is about to enter the great courtyard, like an athlete bent to start a contest, he treated the Gaguna as if it were worth only thirty shekels. Like a robber plundering the city, he set tall ladders against the temple. To demolish a cur as if it were a huge ship, to break up its soil like the soil of mountains where precious metals are mined, to splinter it like the lapis lazuli mountain, to prostrate it like a city inundated by Ikur, god of rain. Though the temple was not a mountain where cedars are felled, he had large axes cast. He had double-edged agasilic axes sharpened to be used against it. He set spades against its roots, and it sank as low as the foundation of the land. He put axes against its top, and the temple, like a dead soldier, bowed its neck before him and all the foreign lands bowed their necks before him. He ripped out its drain pipes, and all the rain went back to the heavens. He tore off its upper lintel, and the land was deprived of its ornament. From its gate from which grain is never diverted, he diverted grain, and the land was deprived of grain. 
He struck the gate of well-being with a pickaxe, and well-being was subverted in all the foreign lands. As if they were for great tracts of land with wide carp-filled waters, he cast large spades to be used against the Eker. The people could see the bedchamber, its room which knows no daylight. The Akkadians could look into the holy treasure chest of the gods. Though they had committed no sacrilege, its deities of the great Pilaster standing at the temple were thrown into the fire by Naram Sin. The cedar, cypress, juniper, and boxwood, the woods of its gaguna, were cut down by him. He put its gold in containers and put its silver in leather bags. He filled the docks with its copper, as if it were a huge transport of grain. The silversmiths were reshaping its silver. Jewelers were reshaping its precious stones. Smiths were beating its copper. Large ships were moored at the temple. Large ships were moored at Enlil's temple and its possessions were taken away from the city, though they were not the goods of a plundered city. With the possessions being taken away from the city, good sense left Akkad. As the ships left the docks, Akkad's intelligence was removed. Enlil, the roaring storm that subjugates the entire land, the rising deluge that cannot be confronted, was considering what should be destroyed in return for the wrecking of his beloved Ikur. He lifted his gaze towards the Guban Mountains and made all the inhabitants of the broad mountain ranges descend. Enlil brought out of the mountains those who do not resemble other people, who are not reckoned as part of the land, the Gudians, an unbridled people with human intelligence but canine instincts and monkey's features. Like small birds, they swooped on the ground in great flocks. Because of Enlil, they stretched their arms out across the plain like a net for animals. Nothing escaped their clutches. No one left their grasp. Messengers no longer traveled the highways. The courier's boat no longer passed along the rivers. The Gudians drove the trusty goats of Enlil out of their folds and compelled their herdsmen to follow them. They drove the cows out of their pens and compelled their cowherds to follow them. Prisoners manned the watch. Brigands occupied the highways. The doors of the city gates of the land lay dislodged in mud, and all the foreign lands uttered bitter cries from the walls of their cities. They established gardens for themselves within the cities, and not as usual on the wide plain outside. As if it had been before the time when cities were built and founded, the large arable tracts yielded no grain, the inundated tracts yielded no fish, the irrigated orchards yielded no syrup or wine, the thick clouds did not rain. In those days, oil for one shekel was only half a liter, grain for one shekel was only half a liter, wool for one shekel was only one mina, fish for one shekel filled only one band measure. These sold at such prices in the markets of the cities. Those who lay down on the roof died on the roof. Those who lay down in the house were not buried. People were flailing at themselves from hunger. By the cur, Enlil's great place, dogs were packed together in the silent streets. If two men walked there, they would be devoured by them. And if three men walked there, they would be devoured by them. Noses were punched. Heads were smashed. Noses were piled up. Heads were sown like seeds. Honest people were confounded with traitors. Heroes lay dead on top of heroes. The blood of traitors ran upon the blood of honest men. At that time, Enlil rebuilt his great sanctuaries into small reed sanctuaries, and from east to west he reduced their storehouses. The old women who survived those days, the old men who survived those days, and the chief lamentation singer who survived those years set up seven drums, as if they stood at the horizon. 
and together with drums made them resound to Enlil like a cur for seven days and seven nights. The old women did not restrain the cry, Alas for my city! The old men did not restrain the cry, Alas for its people! The lamentation singer did not restrain the cry, Alas for the Ikur! Its young women did not restrain from tearing their hair. Its young men did not restrain from sharpening their knives. Their laments were as if Enlil's ancestors were performing a lament in the awe-inspiring holy mound by the holy knees of Enlil. Because of this, Enlil entered his holy bedchamber and lay down fasting. At that time, Sin, Enki, Ishtar, Ninurta, Ikur, Shamash, Nuska, and Nisaba, the great gods, cooled Enlil's heart with cool water and prayed to him. Enlil, may the city that destroyed your city be treated as your city has been treated. May the one that defiled your Giguna be treated as Nippur, in this city. May heads fill the wells. May no one find his acquaintances there. May brother not recognize brother. May its young woman be cruelly killed in her woman's domain. May its old man cry in distress for his slain wife. May its pigeons moan on their window ledges. May its small birds be smitten in their nooks. May it live in constant anxiety like a timid pigeon. Again, Sin, Enki, Ishtar, Ninurta, Ikur, Shamash, Nuska, and Nisaba, all the gods whosoever, turned their attention to the city and cursed Akkad severely. City, you pounced on Ikur. It is as if you had pounced on Enlil. May your holy walls to their highest point resound with mourning. May your Gaguna be reduced to a pile of dust. May your pilasters fall to the ground like tall young men drunk on wine. May your clay be returned to its abzu. May it be clay cursed by Enki. May your grain be returned to its furrow. May your timber be returned to its forest. May the cattle slaughterer slaughter his wife. May your sheep butcher butcher his child. May your prostitute hang herself at the entrance to her brothel. May your pregnant hieroduels and cult prostitutes abort their children. May your gold be bought for the price of silver. May your silver be bought for the price of pyrite. And may your copper be bought for the price of lead. Akkad, may your strong man be deprived of his strength so that he will be unable to lift his sack of provisions. So he will not have the joy of controlling your superior beasts of burden. May he lie idle all day May this make the city die of hunger. May your citizens who used to eat fine food lie hungry in the grass and herbs, eating the coating on their roofs, chewing the leather hinges on their doors. May Ukuku, the bird of depression, make its nest upon your palace built for joy. May the evils of the desert, the silent place, howl continuously. May foxes that frequent ruined mounds brush with their tails your fattening pens, established for purification ceremonies. May the grass grow long on your canal bank, towpaths. May the grass of morning grow on your highways laid for wagons. May wild rams and alert snakes of the mountains allow no one to pass on your towpaths built up with canal sediment. In your plains where fine grass grows, may the reed of lamentation grow, a cod, May brackish water flow where fresh water flowed for you. If someone decides, I will dwell in the city, may he not enjoy the pleasures of a dwelling place. If someone decides, I will rest in a cod, may he not enjoy the pleasures of a resting place. And before Shamash, on that very day, so it was. Ishtar be praised for the destruction of a cod. End quote. Such was the wrath of the gods. 
war, banditry, famine, and drought. To me, there is little wonder why this story became almost as cherished as the Epic of Gilgamesh in Mesopotamian tradition. It is the first story we have about the fall of an empire, the first of many, and it is well told. But now, let us close this episode with a brief investigation into how the empire actually fell. With the death of Naram-Sin, his son, Shar Kalishari, who had overseen the ill-fated Ica renovation project, succeeded him. Interestingly, it was during Sharkalishari's 25-year reign that we hear mention of a city called Babylon for the first time, the cradle of a future empire, which may have been conceived in part due to the decline of nearby Kish. Other cities in the region were also set to be on the decline, possibly because of changing climatic conditions, the same reason given for the decline of Uruk way back in the 4th millennium BC. According to recent scholarship, there is some evidence to suggest that the region around the Kaba River, a northern tributary of the Euphrates, experienced dust bowl-like conditions. Downstream, Sumer may have felt the effects of this phenomenon, although not as keenly. More likely, Sumer had been much more impacted by the ceaseless demand for tribute over the course of two centuries of Akkadian rule, as evidenced by the repeated rebellions which had but few lapses. On top of the chronically discontented Sumerian cities, Sharkalishari also faced a new threat, the Gudians, the prototypical barbaric tribe come from the east to wreak havoc. These were the same mountain people referenced in the Curse of Akkad, unleashed by Enlil to plunder and pillage the fracturing Akkadian Empire. Not much is known of them, and they may have appeared on the scene even at the end of Naram-Sin's reign. Although Sharkalishari is said to have won victories against the Gudians, as well as the Amorites, Elamites, and rebellious Sumerians, by the end of his reign, the Akkadian Empire seems to have unraveled. The details of it all are disappointingly murky, with few inscriptions remaining, but the Sumerian king list makes the chaos of the period all too clear, pointedly asking, who was king? Who was not king? After Sharkalishari, there came two other Akkadian rulers that we know of, Dudu, who ruled for 21 years, and his son Shudurul, who ruled for 15 but both of them seem only to have reigned over the region of Akkad, with the people of Gudium, Lagash, Uma, Uruk, and Elam picking apart the scraps of the empire like carrion crows. So then, what can we say about the legacy of this earliest of empires? According to some historians, the Akkadian Empire ushered in the heroic chapter of the Bronze Age period, giving the world Gilgamesh-like figures in the form of Sargon and Aram-Sin were more grounded in history. Whereas Sargon succeeded in taking a tribal people and conquering the most sophisticated civilization in the known world, Naram-Sin took the Sumerian civilizing mission further still and proclaimed himself a god. The Sumerian kinglist had already conceptualized the idea of a universal kingship, but the Akkadians actually brought it to life, despite the fact that ancient Sumer never quite accepted its rule. In conclusion, it was a mixed legacy a decentralized tributary empire that set new precedents and reached new horizons, although at the meticulously recorded cost of human life and dignity, especially among the Sumerians, without whom there was no foundation for this empire. Little wonder then that we hear of Akkadian sculptures being mutilated, despite the futile warnings expressed in their inscriptions. In Assyria, depicted figures had their eyes gouged out, their ears cut, or their heads beheaded. While in Sumer, 
these figures were habitually smashed into countless pieces. And yet, on the other side of the token, we also hear of worshippers at a temple in Sippar, in the very heart of Mesopotamia, leaving behind offerings to a likeness of Sargon of Akkad. Not only that, we hear of not one, but two Assyrian rulers who would take the name Sargon, and we see Nabonidus and Hammurabi of the Babylonians, and Hattushilu of the Hittites, making favorable references to Akkadian achievements, even as they sought to surpass them. Closer to home, the Sumerian city-states that re-emerged in the wake of the Akkadians, like Lagash, Uruk, and Ur, would emulate the aesthetics and rhetoric of their former subjugator, and build on their civic reforms, as in the case of Shulgi, even if they failed to create empires of their own. In sum, the Akkadians, our prototypical empire builders, would be studied, imitated, worshipped, resented, and caricatured long into the future by succeeding Mesopotamian civilizations right up to the time of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. But most importantly, they would not be forgotten. <laughs>